Good morning, church. You guys doing all right today? Good. It is uh, always just such a joy to gather up here together uh, in that weekly rhythm uh, to join together in being stirred up and being spurred on toward love and good deeds, to do the spurring on and the stirring up uh, of love and good deeds in others. This is the great privilege and reality that the author of Hebrews speaks to uh, when that author says, man, whatever you do, don't neglect doing this uh, as some are in the habit of doing, but do this so that you might be stirred up. Because we are stirred up toward the gospel and uh, the reminder of the gospel, the remembering of the gospel, the clarity of the gospel, and then toward love, what we are recipients and participants in as our conversations in the lobby happen around a cup of coffee and a donut. And as we enter into this part of uh, our space and we declare words of truth through song, where we are both declaring them and speaking them from our own soul and mind, fixing our eyes on Jesus, but also hearing them shouted by those around us, being reminded of who we belong to and who belongs to us and what a privilege it is to be recipients of the gospel and what a privilege it is to be participants in the gospel. This is the, this is the essence of the call of the church, isn't it? That we, the church, the people of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, uh, belong now to the kingdom of God, uh, our eternal home waiting to be fully realized. And we, as a collective called the church, as we gather in our little local expressions around the globe, become outposts, uh, lighthouses of the kingdom of God. So what that means is that when people encounter us as a collective, uh, that they are encountering, we hope, uh, an experience that is much more reflective of the kingdom of God than it is reflective of the kingdom of earth. That the realities in which we live, the way we think and behave toward each other and the world would reflect the principles and realities of the kingdom of God uh, and they would not reflect or being informed by the realities of our current cultural context. The reality is though we live in a current cultural context and because that is our daily life, we are by definition informed by it on some level. And the beauty of scripture by the power of the spirit is to come to us and continue to remind us of the stark contrast between things when they are not the same. When the culture does not have a principle or truth or reality or way that aligns with the kingdom of God, we will know it because the kingdom of God will be reflected through the word of God. The letter we are in right now, as we have been traveling our way through the Bible for a long time now, is the letter that Paul is writing to Timothy in preparation for Timothy to go to the church in Ephesus, a church, a particular church and to reorient that church by confronting what is in that church that is of the culture, of the mind of the culture, the way of the culture, and what is not. And so this letter is a encouragement to Timothy, but also more importantly and more extensively, an unpacking of what that should look like. Uh, Paul starts the letter in the introduction and Timothy 
uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, and says, the aim of our charge in this letter is... Wow, you guys are kind of there. I love it. I thought we'd been out of the book for like a month and a half. You're going to not know, but uh, like 12 of you definitely got it. So as we as we group together to remember, because we're going to be in Timothy for a bit again, uh, the uh, Paul writes, the aim of this charge, this letter, this book is love. Why? Because Jesus said they will know we are followers of Jesus first and foremost by our love for one another, our love for God and our love for the world, that our love looks different than the love of our world. Because that love changes and shapes like shifting sand. But God's definition of love remains firm and clear. And we're going to look like that. And then Paul writes toward the middle of this letter uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And he says to Timothy, hey, I, I want to come soon. But if I am delayed, the reason I'm writing this letter is so that you can help the church know how to behave in a manner that reflects who they belong to and what kingdom they belong to. It is him saying, the aim is love, but I also want to be practical and tell you what that looks like as we behave toward one another, as we deal in our relational dynamics with one another inside of the church. The main focus of this letter is right here inside of the church and how we are to love one another well. So what Paul has done throughout this letter, where we've gotten to now, is he has demonstrated that if we, the people of God, the church collectively, are going to be able to love well, that we need to understand with clarity the principles, realities, truths, and ways of the kingdom of God, right? And the definitions that God holds to what love looks like So if we have a misguided or a misinformed truth, uh, then immediately all of the way we're doing things is going to be misguided and misinformed and our behaviors will not align with the kingdom of God because our truth is not of the kingdom of God. So a, a critical importance to be able to be the church that God calls us to be is truth, God's truth. So if we do not hold firmly and study diligently and dig deeply uh, into the truths of God, trusting the Holy Spirit to inform us as we participate with our digging, and we do not take sound doctrine, which is really just the description of truth, the articulation of truth, seriously, then inevitably we will not be the church we need to be and we will not believe, uh, believe and live rightly. This is obviously in the immediate context a big deal because why is this church going astray? Because some leaders in the church are teaching false doctrine. That false doctrine is leading to a false assumptions about how to behave and the value systems in which we should live. And those behaviors have disrupted the way the church functions and it looks more like the world than the church or or than the kingdom of God. And so Paul is directly saying, you see what happens when doctrine or truth is not taken seriously. Then the second thing Paul does, as he is sprinkling through the letter, how we are to behave toward one another in different ways, uh, he kind of tapped into this issue of leadership, of authority. And he said, man, if you want a church to be able to live a life that is following Jesus well, you need truth 
that is taken very seriously and you need leaders leading well. You need leaders leading well. You need leaders with character. You need leaders that love Jesus. You need leaders that are serving in humility. You're going to need good leaders because if your leaders are not living out the truths of God, then eventually, inevitably, you won't if you stay under that leadership. So isn't it beautiful? We need truth and we need leaders who not only know that truth and teach that truth, but live by that truth as their journey, then the chance the church has to actually collectively reflect the kingdom of God is strong. That's where we've gotten so far. There is the so far summary of the letter to Timothy from Paul. What Paul is about to do in the passage we're jumping into today is he's now going to say, okay, uh, if, uh, if, we, if, if we have leaders that need to be good leaders, and I've unpacked for you what those leaders should look like. This is Paul speaking, not me, right? He's kind of said, I- I've done that, all the qualifications, realities and stuff. And I've talked to the leaders in the letter already. Hey, leaders, people in authority, people that are over others. Remember, you are supposed to be doing this for their well-being and for the kingdom of God and the glory of Christ, not for yourself. Already done that. The next question is, how should we interact with, deal with, see, and engage with our leaders? Now, the particular context that Paul is going to speak of in this passage are those leaders that in addition to their leadership are also given particular authority. This word authority is a big deal, right? Authority holds power because authority is by definition something over others. And so he's going to talk about the elders in the leadership category. This isn't as much about leaders as much as it is about leaders that hold particular authority over others. How should we in the church see that? Now, before we jump into the passage, it is probably wise for us just to get a quick articulation, a quick thought process ourselves for what our cultural means is by which we deal with leaders, right? Because then at least we'll be able to recognize where our culture deals with leaders and what we're about to learn from this passage, where they are the same and where they contrast. Are you with me so far? So how does our culture deal with authority, power, leadership? How does it deal with all of that? In order to understand what's going on today in the arena of people with authority, people with power, we have to understand something that's happened in our past. For some time now, and by the way, this is not new uh, to history, new to America. We're not the first culture that, that figured this little mess out. This has been ongoing in the human story forever. It just shows up in different ways. In our cultural context, here's how it showed up. Uh, uh, quite some time ago, in dramatic form, in a culture like ours, the Western American culture, because we valued success and we valued competence, what we started buying into is the idea that people who are very successful, very talented, and very competent, therefore will succeed, should be leaders, should be in authority. So we started choosing leaders for decades and decades and decades now in every sector, business, ministry, politics, you name it, by talent over character. 
It's not that we completely ignored character. It's just that we elevated talent over character. So what that means in our culture is it doesn't mean every leader or person in authority has no character. It just meant we didn't pay much attention to it one way or the other. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't, but what we know they have is talent. What we know they have is competency and what we know they have is a track record of success. And so we put those people into leadership. And what that did is it caused a windfall over time of people abusing leadership because when you have people in leadership and perhaps I would shift the word in authority or power that are very talented, very competent, but lack character, they will abuse that position and they will do it well because they're very talented and because they are highly competent. And in that abuse, we the people, whether in business or in ministry or in politics or any arena of life, we started experiencing the tremendous pain often of abused leadership. So we acknowledge together, do we have a culture where in some regularity, power and authority has been abused and by abusing it sometimes caused great pain to the people who are under that authority and leadership? Yes. So that happened and we know why that happened, right? In, in, in sort of a larger windfall. Then added to that, we have a culture where information flows a million miles a second and we are privy to all things at all times in all places. A new stage in history. If something happened in a little town in Ohio 30 years ago, you'd never know about it. But now you know about it the instant it happens because it'll be on your feed. So what happens is, Every single uh, uh, incident that takes place in a category, we now are made privy to it. And so it feels often like this thing is happening so much more. So every time there is another category of abused power and authority, who knows about it? Everyone. And how many are there if you took them all throughout the entire nation? A lot. And we know about all of them. Now, there's far, far, far too many stories to tell of where power and authority is not abused. And they're no fun because they're not like, woo. And so we hear about all the ones that are. And that becomes for us as a people, a scary space. Power is abused. When it's abused, it causes great pain. And it's happening a lot everywhere all the time. Because look at my feed. And so what that shapes a culture to be in response to that is to say, Power and authority is bad because it's inevitable and is abuse of that. So who must police that? We must police that. Welcome. And it fits our political system perfectly. And so we say we must police that. And anytime we now see any space of power or authority, our conclusion should be, this is the culture, that the inevitability of that person or people abusing this is 100%. And we must have ways preventively to look for that happening. So we take stories of power and abuse. We look at what happened there. We put language to that. We have podcasts of uh, ministry leaders and other people. And we're like, and then we take those little things and those big things and those giant things. And we look to the leaders currently in place, the people in authority. And we watch for any whisper of any of those things. And when they're there, we're like, aha, abuse of power. That's just our culture. Now, we're not suggesting any of that is right or wrong yet. We're just saying 
This is how our culture functions. The response to all the abuse is police the people in authority. The trouble is what our culture has never left behind is that we also idolize the people in authority. Oh no, so we have a double hitter here. When they come into authority or into power or into influence, because influence is power, we idolize them. They are our leaders, our sports heroes, our uh, actresses and actor heroes, our, our successful heroes, our rich heroes. We read their business books. We read their blogs. We read their ministry uh, things. We look at their, so we still idolize them as a culture, 100%. But now we're idolizing them, expecting them to do extraordinary things for us and be what we need them to be. And we're policing them to make sure if they breathe left or right in any way that sniffs of abuse, we're going to slaughter them. Everyone's like, hmm, yep, it's about right. So our leaders, people in authority in our culture, regardless of sector, live in a world now where the expectations of their competency, talent, ability, and character are still just as high as they used to be, even higher now, an expectation of absolute perfection and flawlessness while being humble, deeply caring, wondrous, and successful, and always make one mistake. That's still going on. So the weight of expectation on our culture's leaders is extraordinary. And now in addition, the wonderful added weight, you are being watched all the time by everyone. <laughs> and if you so much as look in any way, like all the podcasts say, are the things to look for an abusive leader, you're going to get sunk. And when you get sunk, it's going to come like a freight train because we take our idols and we turn them into villains. Welcome to the culture. The question is, when we live in this space called the church, and our culture is supposed to look like the kingdom of God, does it look like that or doesn't it? And Paul is about to say, here's how we in the church deal with those who have been placed in positions of authority. I've already talked, Paul says, about how they are supposed to deal with you, those who are under them. And I don't mean you like all of you and me, just uh, Paul's talking here, but how are we supposed to engage with our leaders? You ready for this now? Okay, that was a lot of context. I get it, but we haven't been in Timothy for a while. And this is an important one for culture. Grab your Bibles and let's turn to the book of 1 Timothy. And we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we are going to be in verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. As Timothy now, uh, Paul now moves into unpacking the leaders who hold authority, the elders, how are we to engage with them as a people who they are leading? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So he starts right out the bat and he says, when you have leaders in place who hold authority, uh, you need to treat them with honor. In fact, double honor in some cases, if they are leading well. Now, the second I say that, two things come to mind, at least for me. Don't know about you. In my cultural reality, two things jump emotionally. One, I'm like, yeah, I knew it. Uh, they're supposed to be special because they're special leaders. And so they deserve greater special treatment than the ordinary folk. This is ridiculous. I knew it. Right? 
Don't you feel that a little bit? Double honor for the leaders because they're special. And the other thing that jumps to mind is this whole idea of honor at all kind of feels a little like, ah, uh, because we are not a culture of honoring. Just FYI. You're like, that's not true. We are. We No, for decades and decades, perhaps a century, we have been slowly moving further and further as a culture that just honors each other and honors relationship in general. I grew up in um, South Africa. And when I was in school in South Africa, if I... Uh, if we were in a classroom and a teacher walked into our classroom to tell the other teacher something, if you didn't stand up out of your desk in 2.3 seconds, you had detention immediately. The whole classroom stood up. You stood until that teacher said, you guys are welcome to sit down. If they didn't say sit down, you didn't sit down. And you waited for them to leave the classroom. And then you didn't sit down until what? Your teacher told you could sit down. If you didn't do that, you got detention. If I walked through a door in front of a teacher when I was growing up in school, I had detention before I got through the door. Because there was a system in the culture to say, we're going to teach those in different positions to honor one another, even if we have to force it on them a little bit. When I moved to the U.S., I was still in high school and I got into our high school system and it was a confusing space to live in. Because the students were the teachers, the teachers, the students. And there was a peering of that that was weird for me. Things were said that I'm like, wow, that's not detention. That's just death. Like you don't even go to detention. If I said that in a classroom in South Africa, I am, it's done. I'm dead. My parents are getting a call about the sadness of my death. <laughs> and whenever I held the door open for a teacher here in the U.S., uh, the shock on their faces was extraordinary. And I thought maybe I was a bit slow and trouble was coming. But I realized later that it was just about the fact that they had a door open. I'm like, I was just scared I'd get detention. I use that as an example just to say, let's just be clear that our, our, our culture is not by its definition an honoring culture. So when we say, give the people in authority double honor, we already feel a bit mad. <sighs> Whatever. And why? Because they're special? Maybe, maybe. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at what Paul says. Um, why should they receive? Oh, before I do that, just to explain something, double honor. Double honor sounds weird, right? It's not actually complicated in this case. All Paul is saying here, it's language that was used in Old and New Testament times and biblical uh, language that someone who is in authority in the church as an elder, they are going to be doing a number of things to serve the body. For those who are doing things to the extent that it requires the kind of time that in eliminates their ability to gain uh, a provision from elsewhere, double honor them, meaning give them the honor they deserve uh, from the relational perspective and pay them for what they do. That's a double honor so that they can keep doing what they're doing, especially those who teach and preach. Why does he bring that up? Because teaching and preaching is more special. No, because it requires more time. And so therefore, likely those are the elders that would need most likely additional resources. So he's just saying, what you don't want to do, folks in the church, kingdom culture is exchange honor. For those who get paid, I no longer have to treat them with honor relationally because they're getting paid. For those who do it for free, I need to give them relational honor because they're not getting paid. He's saying, uh, man, honor the leaders, the elders in the church, double honor whenever necessary. You with me? That's all. But the point is still, do we honor them because they're special? Take a look at this. For the scripture says, verse 18, 
You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, the wages one makes a little more sense context here because Paul just said double honor them. So he's trying to prove you should pay them. That's not the point of that verse, actually. But the ox thing is weird, isn't it? Hey, double honor the elders. Don't muzzle an ox. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm on it. Where does this come from? This is language directly out of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, it is language found in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and 25. In chapters 24 and 25 of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the people of God are hearing from God about how to behave as the people of God to reflect the kingdom of God. Aha, uh -huh, right? And there's all these listings of what they should do that the culture was not doing that they say, do this. And there were two particular verses in that whole section of Deuteronomy 24 and 25 that literally said exactly this. The one was about day laborers, which is the same language right here, saying, give a day laborer his fair or her fair wages. Are you with me? And the reason that they had to say that in Deuteronomy is because the day laborer in that culture was thought of almost like sort of someone who was necessary to production, but not necessary to humanity, right? In other words, that person that we think less of, they're just a day laborer, they just get things done. And what was happening in that culture is because day laborers had no power, authority, whatever, they were being mistreated. They weren't thought of as human beings. They were thought of as tools that are necessary and you paid them when you felt like it, didn't pay them when you didn't. And what does Deuteronomy say? You don't get to look at another human being just because of the role they play in, in the dynamic of society or your relationship with them and think less of them. You don't get to do that. Not in the kingdom of God, you don't. So kingdom people, whether it's the day laborer or someone in power, listen, what are they all? Humans, humans, they're people. Treat them like people. Love them like people. That's what you do with the day labor. Pay them fairly because you're not dealing with a tool. You're dealing with a person. Man, God made this person. They matter. You better do that. And it even says in Deuteronomy, I love it. If you don't, they're going to complain to God at some point. And then your sin's going to come to bear. It literally says, like, I dare you not to treat them well. Get them to the point where they get bummed out and complain to God. And let's see what God does. That's what Deuteronomy says. It's serious business. And then the other one is the ox. So here's what he did with the ox. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's talking about when the ox is uh, uh, trampling the grain, don't muzzle it. Why not? Well, you muzzled the ox because what would the ox do while it trampled the grain? Eat the grain. And the ox isn't about being a living creature and ha having been designed by God and beautiful. It's about production. It is something you simply use like a tractor. And so efficiency matters. The ox doesn't matter. Just put a muzzle on it. And what this heart is in Deuteronomy is when you look at each other, value each other because you hold within you the created reality of God and his image. And when you look at the animals that God has given you to use and the living creatures around you, don't treat them like tools. They are living, beautiful displays of God's creativity. And the fact that they're helping you, you should be grateful. So take that thing off that ox. Let the ox eat a little of the grain because he's going to be stomping a whole lot of grain for you. That's the heart of Deuteronomy. So look what Paul's doing here. Honor 
the elders among you who hold authority. Not because they're special, but because they're regular people. They're humans. They actually have feelings. Do you remember that? Leaders and people in authority actually feel things still. They're actually scared sometimes. They're actually normal humans. They actually do some things really well and they actually do some things not so well. They're going to make mistakes and they're going to get things right. They are also people. And when you treat your elders, people in authority, uh, celebrities, whatever else, like idols, that is unloving, unkind, unrealistic, and you don't treat them like people, you treat them like tools. What is my pastor gonna bring me? What's he gonna do? Here are my expectations. What's my politician going to do? I'm not talking about corrupt. Who's he talking about right here? Elders who lead? Well, can we just stay in that context? We're not at the other side yet. He's just the folks doing well. Doing well, not perfect well. They're humans. So when you honor them, honor them because they need encouragement too. They need provision too. They need to know that they're being fanned into flame just like you. It's not that the second you become a leader in authority, you no longer need uh, anyone encouraging you because you are now the grand encourager. In the kingdom of God, in our different positions, they don't change our value, they just change our role. And in that role, people go to your elders and honor them, double honor when necessary, because they are not tools and they are not not human, they are. Then he says this, verse 18, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now this one gets tricky again because you still feel like this one is about honor the elders and one of the ways you honor the elders is don't you dare bring any accusation against them if you're the only one that knows of the accusation. This is a scary sentence, isn't it? Because immediately it begs the question, does it mean that for example, if you are the recipient of someone in some way abusing their power over you, but no one else has seen it, then you can't bring it because this will be quoted at you. Do you have two witnesses of what happened? I don't. That's not at all what this is talking about. It's actually referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 19 because Paul's in a, in a headspace right now. He's like, God already told us all this stuff. Let's just do it right. This hasn't changed. In Deuteronomy 19, it speaks to how to handle an accusation against anyone when they have done something that is in some way in nature abuse of some sort, a criminal event. And here's what it says about how that's supposed to go down. I'm actually just gonna read it because I think this one helps us understand what is meant and what is not meant here with Paul. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. This is just the system, the court system, just like our court system. You go into court, someone accuses you of something, you go into one of our judges and they say, anybody else, is there any evidence whatsoever If there's no evidence and there's no one, what does our court system do? And you may be telling the truth, but we can't know. So they're just saying, man, you you don't just get to accuse and then the person is sunk. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties are to dispute, uh, both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and before the judges, who are to office in those days. The judge shall inquire 
And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him what he had meant to do to his brother. That's Deuteronomy's way of saying, this is serious business bringing accusations. And in a cultural context where all you have to do is write a blog and that leader is sunk, this is good advice. Should we leave our leaders unaccountable in any category? Does the kingdom of God want us to do that? Because that's the kingdom of God. No, no, no one's, I love it. No, but when we bring accusation, all he's saying here is be careful not to do that in a flighty manner because you, you saw it and, and boom, it's out there. Uh, gather up some credible reality as to why it's happened. Pro come to the right people, priests and judges in this case, bring the accusation, bring the evidence, work through the proper system and it will be brought to light. That's how it works. So they're just simply saying the propensity to engage with leaders and sink them with a single accusation. First, we have to figure out, is the accusation even true? And you can't do that. I can't do that. We need the right system. Now, look what Paul does. This is awesome. We thought that was about the elders who deserve the double honor. And in some ways it was. Don't just bring accusation to them overnight because you heard a whisper in a conversation that frankly was gossip. Do this instead. Come bring evidence to the right place. And then as for those, verse 20, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Wow. So here's the beauty. The kingdom of God speaks to the way we deal with our leaders on both ends of the spectrum. If you are on this end of the spectrum where you idolize your leader and you idolize their talent and you idolize their success and, you, and your paychecks are tied to them and, and your well-being or your team's winning is tied to them and they do some stupid character thing, just bury it because they're so awesome. I've seen this in the church. I've seen this in the world where we ignore clear and present abuses of things because the person who's doing the abusing is so talented and so awesome and so good and so, so we just leave it alone or we're just scared. And this is saying in the kingdom of God, we do not idolize our leaders in such a way that we cannot and will not bring accusation when it needs to be brought. But when we bring it, we bring it rightly and we bring it first to the priests and judges in the, in the New Testament context to the collective of elders, right? If that person, after the accusation has been brought, the accusation has been confirmed and the person is being discipled, challenged and called out of that. Once all that's happened, if this leader persists in their sin, they're unrepentant, what then? Make it public. Make it public because when you step into leadership in the church, which is reflecting the kingdom of God, you step into leadership that is meant to be public. In other words, uh, the accountability of this leadership isn't by each individual one of you, but it is by the collective of our looking knowledge and seeing and the elders discernment. And so what he's saying is this, man, listen, don't idolize your leaders. Bring an accusation when it needs to be brought. brought it, bring it rightly. And if that leader does persist in their sin, then by all means, make it more public until eventually it's totally public. Why? So that the other elders go, man, if I persist in sin and it's accused, found out and confirmed and I stay in it, it's coming here. Welcome to being an elder. Welcome to being in positions of leadership. That is necessary. Now look what he says. 
in the presence of God, verse 21, and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. He's basically saying this. And listen, wherever you stand in your uh, relationship with the leader who holds authority within the church, whatever your heart is toward them, do this without partiality, right? Uh, your call, people, my call, people, to engage with our leaders in honoring them and double honoring them and also engaging in bringing to the right group the evidence of character flaws so that they can be brought into repentance and change should be a responsibility of all of us. But when our heart bringing those things to each other or to the leadership is this person's letting me down. I hate him. I'm sinking them. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is I, I love this leader. I want them to sustain this leader. Their character flaws popped out uh, and it's not good. I need to bring that to someone's attention. If they're an abusive leader, a terrible leader, and that's becoming true, what do we do? We come and we bring it to the table. Listen, here at Mosaic Church, uh, we, we are not in a space where we're like, we, we don't want to live in that. In fact, here, this reality of making sure that in some regularity, uh, there is a complete openness to examine our leaders here. We take that deadly seriously here. I mean, you guys remember, if you've been around the church for a little while, the last two years, quite a run, right? Uh, and we made the decision to bring into our midst uh, an, an outside source to do a full scope. We had 120 people, all of our staff, a bunch of leaders, congregants stuff, do surveys about the leaders in this church, their experience of them in every detail. That was put into a massive report. That report went to the elders. And then the elders spent months examining those, if you will, accusations, right? An accusation doesn't have to be about something terrible. It can be like about something that isn't helpful. And then those were dealt with and people were called into processes, myself included, to grow in those areas. And that was how public. Very, one of you said it. Thank you. If you weren't here, then it, you wouldn't have known, but it was quite public and is quite public. That's how we are to do it. It doesn't guarantee the outcome you or I want because you know, sometimes the entire system is so corrupt and I know that, but what God does not give us the luxury to do in any category is say this, if there's a way that I'm calling you to live according to the kingdom of God and the people or person you're living that way with does not live according to the kingdom of God, then you have permission not to live according to the kingdom of God. God doesn't say that. This is your job and mine is to live according to the kingdom of God. And if that means it's costly because justice isn't served, because everyone's corrupt and the whole... Whose responsibility is that injustice when you've done everything you can? God's. Now, I'm not saying that you should not pursue, I should not pursue abuse and abuse of power ongoingly until we see it undone. But in God's kingdom in the church, once we've done our part and done whichever part you play and you fulfilled it, you don't get to stop doing it in a biblical kingdom way just because the other people aren't. You just then at some point say, God, Everything comes to light eventually, please bring it. We want to be a people that show the world how to deal with leadership when it is going well, double honor. And when it is not going well, careful process and then rebuke if it's unrepentant and eventually publicly in a loving manner. We want to do all of that. And then he says this, look at this, sort of in a closing space. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands 
nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. What a brilliant thing to say. If this is the level of leadership we want, and we don't want to have to rebuke it constantly, and we want it to be full of character, how quickly should we choose our leaders? Slowly. Take time. Look into it. Examine before you put them into positions of leadership. Who cares what the world does? How should we do it here in the church? That way. Don't pick your elders because they have big bank accounts or because they have big successful businesses or ministries, because they have great talent or ability, because they bring something to the table to your elder team that's going to be an asset to your competency. All those are wonderful things in of themselves if they happen to be in it, but do not choose your leaders by those things. Choose them by their character. And that takes time to figure out. So take your time before you lay hands on leaders. You should be careful. And if you're careful, the likelihood that you get a set of bad leaders that you have to rebuke all the time is very small. And then you can live with a greater confidence in being able to honor who God has put in place to shepherd you and watch out for you as you also shepherd one another, right? Now watch this. Then he says, no longer drink wine, uh, only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Parentheses. Like what? What? Like it's the weirdest. Like I read the first time I read that, I'm like, Paul, why? Why? Why would you do this? Like, are you actually laughing? Like, oh, in 2023, they're going to have a uh, confusing. No. Like, what is this? Now, I know you're sitting there waiting. Oh, he's going to tell us what the secret is. Like, frankly, we have no idea exactly what's going on here. But we do know some things enough to at least say this is not random and meaningless because nothing in Scripture is random and meaningless. Okay? So we do know from history that it is likely that this particular church and the leaders here, because of the culture there and the internal culture, were either abusing alcohol on some level Therefore, Timothy is coming in and as a reaction to that, to make sure that that stays, he has decided to only drink water so he could come in with integrity. And Paul's saying, that's not the kind of integrity that's going to win the day. We don't need legalism to fight lawlessness. We say that again. We don't need legalism to fight lawlessness. We need character. Maybe we, from history, it's that actually the leaders in that church were being legalistic. And we know they were certainly in other categories. So they were actually making their purity and their character an issue of their legalities. Look, we only drink water, nothing else. We deprive ourselves from everything else. We are purer than the wine drinkers. Maybe that's what was exactly going on. And then Paul would have said here, right? When he says, don't participate in the sin of others. And he knows that's going to be a category. He goes, Timothy, we've talked about this. You got the stomach stuff going on. Water's fine, but a little wine doesn't hurt. It's, and in that time, wine had some, uh, because they didn't have all the medicines we did, you used to you drink a little wine. So the principle there either way is this. Never ever have legalism try to fix the problem of lawlessness. Very bad, because both are bad. Never ever have lawlessness be excused because you don't want to be legalistic. In this, what you do is bring the gospel to this. The third thing is possibly this, that though it did relate in some way to one of those two categories or some third category, otherwise Paul wouldn't have put it here. It's also just personal. And I love that the letters that we read in the New Testament were written by actual people to actual people. And sometimes in those letters, there's actual parentheses where it's just Paul speaking lovingly to his friend Timothy and saying, just in case I know your heart, you're going to be like, man, I got to drink only water. 
keep drinking a little bit of wine for the stomach. That's not what I'm saying. Isn't it beautiful that the sanctity and beauty and sacred nature of scripture, God still made one human to another. So either way, whatever that lands on, here's what we do know. Paul put it in here to say, it's okay to drink a little wine in this context. Don't make this the solution to anything. Those kinds of things are never the solution. The solution is deep character, passion for Jesus, a hatred of lawlessness, and a hatred of legalism, and a love of the gospel. And this just reminds us of that. And then finally, look what he says to close it out. So, uh, where are we? Here we go. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What a strange way to end this, but not really at all. Here's what he's saying. Often in cultures, the expectation is if the process up front selecting the leaders is robust and clear and perfect, you'll always get leaders that are great. So when you find a leader that turns out to not have the character you thought, the problem is with the process. Is it sometimes with the process? Yes. But what Paul's saying is remember, why is it necessary to honor those doing well? And why is it necessary to rebuke those who aren't? Because every leader you choose, they are going to surprise you at how good they are at doing this well at times, even though you knew when it got started. So honor that as it goes. In other words, as your leader demonstrates greater uh, love and shepherding, don't just say, well, we honored you by choosing you. Now you're on your own. As there's a progression of realizing the good works and the work toward that, honor that. And some of your leaders, their stuff's going to show up later. They're the sin stuff. When it does, how do you love them? Call it out. Bring it to the attention of the elders and do this well in a loving way so that they can heal. Who wants to live in sin here? None of us. So don't leave them in it. Come to them and help them because you're going to have leaders that we see the stuff up front and your process hopefully identifies the majority of that, but some stuff's just hidden. And what did God say? But don't worry, it'll show up. It'll show up. And when it does, Deal with it appropriately. Here at Mosaic Church, man, uh, this, all of this, uh, we take this deadly seriously. Because again, at the end of the day, it's not your wrath that I feel nervous about. It's when I leave this planet and I stand before my Savior that I would hate to find out that we got it all wrong and we made a mess of things when he invited us and called us into this. So we stand with that weight, whether it is in the preaching and teaching or in the leadership here. But we are humans. And so what we do here at Mosaic Church is we do things to put this in place and have had them for a long time. Our process to see an elder be affirmed here is robust and long. You fill out a long application just to even get your name on a, on a, on a list. And then there are four or five interviews that happen. Your spouse, you and your spouse, you, you again, and the exploration of a detailed reality of your life. And if that pans out to be like, okay, you might qualify for the long haul. Then you get brought into the elder process and then that gets made public. If anybody else has any issues we don't know about, please let us know if they're awesome or not, then we do that. Then they go through a whole process, sometimes six months, sometimes 12, sometimes two years, depending on their previous journey and what we need to explore before they are ever uh, brought into affirmation of eldership. 
We do that because we want to be able to say with authenticity, though we cannot know everything and be certain everything is in play, we know enough that we are making a wise decision based on this person being qualified according to scripture. And then we'll let the rest play out later. Then once our elders are in play, both those elders who receive double honor, the paid elders, that's our staff elders, and the elders that receive honor, but not double honor, not paid, because their roles uh, are uh, the kinds of roles that don't require the kind of time that pull them from other things. Both those, there is accountability within the system, both in the elders and other things we do to make sure that there's an ongoing check-in in them. How are you doing for those who are the unpaid? And then for those who are the paid elders, there's a whole additional layer of accountability. We have a system in place here that throughout the year, we have multiple spots of assessment and accountability and realities, reviews and other things that take place, that take place by people in authority over that, myself included. I am a part of a constant reality of the lay elders engaged in how I'm doing in my positions of leadership, both from competency, but also from character. All that goes on. And then we sometimes do these giant crazy things where we did the last two years, like expose everything so we can work on it. We take it deadly seriously. It doesn't mean we won't have elders here that stuff comes out later. And then we will do the very best we can, like we have been to bring accusation rightly, to bring about the discipleship and to see what changes. And if it's a persistent sin or ongoing things, then eventually to take that to another level. We want to be a place that says that's all ongoing. And we are a place like that. We want you to constantly have eyes on all of that, but not the kinds of eyes that culture has, the kinds of eyes that the biblical kingdom has. You watch, you make sure the process is in place. You ask the right questions and then you confidently trust in the reality of the us. And when we start the process with elders or we end it or it's ongoing, we ask you to speak into it. All that is appropriate. And if there is an elder in this place on staff or not that is abusing power or hurting you, we want to know about that so that we can dig into that and go through the process of figuring that out. And if things happen in this place or any other place where you've done all that, and then the reality is justice is not served and you don't feel vindicated and really genuinely the stuff took place. Then you go to God and say, I did my part in the way that reflects the kingdom. You are now responsible for that part. And I kind of put that in the category of the day laborer crying out to God and saying, and I tried and God said, do that, leave it to me, right? I want to tell you this, just so you guys know, um, because the culture in the church is very much, in fact, sometimes worse than the culture outside the church in this category of leadership. I have the privilege of hanging out with leaders around the nation in some regularity of very small churches, medium-sized churches, and very, very large churches, the whole spectrum. And it's really a ton of fun to learn from them and to teach and engage and wrestle. I will tell you this. You think the church leaders out there, especially in the church now, uh, the lead pastors and the lead elder teams of churches, you think that they're walking around with big chests and, and confident and, and like, yeah, whatever, because that's kind of the sense we get from all the big leaders out there. That's how they are. I'll tell you what they are. I know because I'm in the rooms with them. They're scared. They're really scared to death, honestly. I, I, especially the big church pastors, especially those, because that's who we go after first because it's more fun because it's more, uh, it's, it's, it, you get more readership, to, to be honest. Now, when there is abuse in those spaces, thank goodness we now have a space where that has opened up and we can dive into that because I hate abusive leadership and we want to weed that out every we can. 
But the trouble is the reason these guys are so scared is because we live in that culture I talked about. And now they know you so much as breathe left or right or tell an employee to do what they're supposed to. And it can be categorized as abusive leadership or articles written in the New York Times and your family is sunk and your life is over. So I've sat in rooms with pastors of extraordinary churches and large churches who are genuinely prayerfully considering getting out of ministry because it's not worth it being in it because of that single danger. They'll face human trafficking. They'll face death and darkness, but facing the people in the church who are looking for the first reason to sink them, that's been scarier than ever. Let's not be that. Not here, not anywhere. Let's not show the culture that we buy into their way. Let's be different about that. Neither are people that ignore genuine need for exposure, nor are people that find any need for any kind of exposure and make small things big or false things real. Don't do that. Honor those who are in leadership here. We have elders here, 15 uh, active and, and six in process. Many of those elders not being on, on staff here. Late at night when you're sleeping and having a great time, they're often in this building wrestling through the emails we get, the accusations we get is, uh, around the nation, doctrinal statements we need to make, things we need to lead in, vision we need to cast, stuff we need to follow through, the technicalities of budgets, money, holding everything accountable, watching our staff, they carry a heavy load. And on top of all that, they sit in a space that says, if an accusation comes and it's real, it's going to go public. That's what it means to be an elder. It's okay. That's a lot to carry, isn't it? You should be praying for your elders. You should be encouraging your elders. You should be telling your elders how grateful you are for them. And you should be fanning them into flame while they are doing well. Because while they're doing well, our culture is silent. And the first misstep they make, our culture is loud as can be. That's not the kingdom culture. And we're not going to live like that. So let's be a people that show the world how to do relationship with one another, even in the categories of leadership and following. Because they don't change our value. They just change our role. That's the kingdom of God, not the world. Pray with me. God, thank you for your incredible love for us and the amazing ways in which you have given us every clarity and then every reason to lay our trust in you and to engage in the relationships we have with you, with one another and with the world in a manner that reflects your kingdom. God, this space, as we enter into the space where our culture in particular has right reason to feel nervous about leadership and authority and power because it's often been abused, that their reaction to that is not the way you lay it out, neither in idolizing and ignoring, nor in sinking and accusing without process and without love. May we be neither of those things in this place. May we have a space where we neither idolize our elders and pastors and leaders here where we have expectation that's unrealistic of them, demands that are too much, or just simply are unwilling to bring what needs to be brought when accountability is necessary. Nor let us be a people that frivolously run around looking for the smallest whisper that ties into what we think is something and make it more. God, we want our leaders here to feel both safe and encouraged and accountable and constantly recognizing that it's public. Teach us, God, to do it well. And give us leaders here that fulfill the majority of what you wrote in this book, what it's meant to be, to be a person serving the church in authority. 
to love, to shepherd, to protect, to care for. And may the world look at us as the church and say, man, that's different. That's crazy. That's awesome and weird. That's beautiful. Show us how to do that, we pray in Jesus' name.